Take your Bible open to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we're in verse 7. I'm going to read through verse 12. Romans 7, verse 7, God's word says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, it would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have to know, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for an opportunity to gather here tonight and to open your word. And we do pray, Lord, that you would guide us through uh, this passage that um, on the surface may perhaps look a little bit uh, difficult and intricate. But we pray that you'd help us to understand the truths that you have for us here because they're wonderful truths uh, that point us uh, to Christ. And so help us understand uh, with your understanding. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, we're here in this uh, seventh chapter of the book of Romans. It's a tremendous portion of scripture. We're looking at the uh, the issue of the law and the Christian and our relationship to it. And, and right up front, I want to say this. I want to say the greatest good news that any person can ever hear is, is the fact that Jesus Christ is coming to the world to save sinners. Amen? Jesus Christ is coming to the world to save sinners. The greatest news that anybody could ever hear, that no man can be saved apart from seeing their need for Christ, and every man who would be saved must see themselves as a sinner in need of God's grace. Now, we know that in our culture, we've completely jettisoned uh, the word sin. I mean, just stop and think about it. It's gone from the vocabulary. When's the last time you ever heard anybody in the general culture use the word sin? Right? We, we've jettisoned the word from the vocabulary, and we've jettisoned the concept. And, and the reality of there being a righteous standard put forth by a holy God, men and fa- that men have fallen woefully short of that standard, is completely uh, unheard of. People just don't understand that. Don't don't think that way. And we we live in a time when there's no right and wrong. Uh, we live in a time where evil is called good and good is called evil. We live in a time where every person thinks that he or she is the standard of truth. That their life, their view of life, their lifestyle within any of the various numbers of immoralities are normal because they have been relabeled as quote unquote personal preferences. We live in a time where everybody does what is right in his or her own eyes. Uh, therefore, even the concept of immoralities is no longer tolerated, along with the idea of evil, or again, even the concept of sin. Because as a society, we will just not put up with those kinds of categories. And not only does society struggle from this issue, but sadly, uh, there are uh, these uh, unbiblical concepts are flooding into the church. One writer says this, Our popular megachurches thrive in order to make the church, quote-unquote, a safe place for everyone, where no one will be judged, where, again, various types of immoralities have been relabeled as personal preferences, and the gospel has been retooled in a way where Jesus can help you succeed to reach your personal life goals. And if you want your church to grow, then you must never mention anything negative like sin. Rather, just keep telling people how much God loves them because they are so lovable. Build up their self-esteem, but never suggest that they are sinners. That is the reality in the world in which we live, and even the Christian world. And I can't even tell you some of the stuff that I've just read this past week, that some quote-unquote churches, which are not churches, are now even entertaining uh, drag queen, quote-unquote, drag queen shows to bring in and entertain their people. All right, so, I mean, we've completely... If you woke up one day and you thought this world's completely lost its mind, you are right, right? So I just want to make sure you feel good about that. We have, right? The world has lost its mind. Now, what's surprising is there's really nothing unique about it. There's nothing unique about it. It's interesting, but back in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 35, we read this. Yet you said, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. Behold, I will enter to judgment because you say I have not sinned. 
Now here, even in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah pictures the nation as saying collectively they're innocent. They haven't sinned. Right? Jeremiah, again, he's the prophet who continually denounced the nation of Israel for their ingratitude, for their idolatry, their apostasy, their wickedness. And he repeatedly condemned this nation as being guilty before God of gross sin. But the people in his day, the nation say, we've not sinned, just like men do today. Right? Men do today everywhere. I've not sinned. That's what men say. But God says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The Bible says as a result of that, the wages of sin is death. The Bible says, God says, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's no one who seeks for good. Uh, for God, they're all have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. So again, I'm going to say this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That no man can be saved apart from seeing himself as a sinner in desperate need of God's grace, in desperate need of a Savior who can stand in the gap to be the substitute to bear a penalty that we can't bear, the penalty for our sin. And the reality of the truth is the entire human race, because of their sin and rebellion against God, is hell-bound. Every man and woman born into this world is headed towards eternal punishment because of their sin, because every person in the world has lived in rebellion against God and in rebellion against God's law. And God's justice demands punishment for that violation. And since the crimes are against God, and they are such a magnitude of rebellion against God, so severe, so monstrous, there's no way that men themselves can ever pay that debt that they owe. Because this debt, this unpaid debt, requires an eternity of suffering because men have sinned against an eternal God. So men will never pay the debt. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, he said, The biblical doctrine of sin is absolutely crucial to understanding the biblical doctrine of salvation. Whatever we may think, we cannot be right and clear about the way of salvation unless we are right and clear about sin. That seems like a fundamental proposition, but one that's often overlooked. We better have a biblical view of sin if we're going to understand biblical salvation. Charles Spurgeon also lamented more than a century ago, said, Too many people think lightly of sin, therefore too many people think lightly of the Savior. And Romans 7, as some have said, contains some of the most penetrating analysis of the issue of sin found anywhere in the Scripture. So we need to understand sin. We need to understand Paul's thought here in in Romans chapter 7. Now, as we saw last time in our Lord's Day evening together, we saw that the law was given to to drive us to Christ. Uh, Galatians 3 and 24, God gave his law to, con- or therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith, right? That God gave the law to convict us of sin, to bring us to an end of ourselves, that we would flee to Christ for salvation. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we became, may be justified by faith. Again, Jesus Christ, our only hope. Jesus Christ, our only hope, salvation Uh, from the penalty of sin, salvation from the power of sin, salvation from the presence of sin, ultimately it only comes through the person uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by a proper understanding of the great doctrine of justification by faith alone, again, the act where God himself declares the believing sinner to be uh, virtuous by the imputed merit of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by grace alone through faith alone. Where Jesus Christ comes and he stands as man's substitute and a man or woman who believes upon Christ as their sin-bearer, is forever forgiven because of Christ. They're granted the positive righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who knows no sin, right? He who knew no sin becomes sin for us. So again, God takes all of our sin and places it upon Christ, punishes Christ instead of punishing us. In return, we're granted the perfect righteousness of the perfect person, the perfect Savior, the imputed righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ. His righteousness credited to our account, imputed to us. And therefore, the believing sinner is equipped to spend eternity in heaven with God. That is good news. That's the gospel. That's why Paul opened the book way back in chapter 1, verse 16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So this is the great doctrine of justification by faith, faith alone. Again, found salvation found only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul has been working this theme throughout this entire book of Romans. 
He spent the first three chapters speaking of mankind's desperate condition before holy God, that all men are utterly condemned in sin, utterly unrighteous. All men are lost and under the wrath of a holy God. They have no ability in themselves to save themselves. And again, all men are guilty. Starting in chapter 3, verse 21, he, after laid out the bankruptcy of man in sin before God and mankind's lack of righteousness, Paul starts to show how God himself has provided all the righteousness that a man needs to have his sin forgiven and have peace with God and then access into God's presence. And again, it comes by God, by God himself, God himself providing justification, God himself providing the propitiatory offering, the propitiatory sacrifice, God himself providing that justification by faith alone, again through his son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Chapter 4 of the book of Romans. Paul shows that the Old Testament saint was saved in the same way that the New Testament saint is, by faith alone, in God alone, showing that the righteousness that God provided the persons of uh, both Abraham and David that were gifts provided by God to them, not as a result of anything those men did, but by God's grace granting them because of the uh, righteousness because of their belief in him. Chapter 5, verse 1, the apostle makes that great declaration at the top of the chapter there's therefore now having uh, therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of god right we have peace with god by justification by faith because of our savior the, the lord jesus christ it's tremendous good news he continues on uh, uh, through uh, verse 11 of chapter 5 and shows the great blessings of justification that God brings into the life of the believer. And from chapter uh, 5, verse 12 through verse 21, which is the end of the chapter, the apostle shows us again that justification was imputed to us. Righteousness was imputed to us in the same way that Adam's sin before we came to faith in Christ was imputed to us. And you might remember that he laid out that great doctrine, uh, the so much more doctrine, if you will, right? How our union with Christ provided us so much more blessings because we're united with Christ, Christ has done so much more for humanity and their salvation than Adam ever did in mankind's destruction in sin because of his rebellion against God. So again, it's an exalt, exaltation of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the key to understanding Romans 6 and 7 is to understand the flow of that thought that Paul is working through this book. Especially the last thing that Paul said in uh, chapter 5, and maybe you want to look back there, chapter 5 uh, uh, verse 20 because that's the last thing he said before he started writing chapter 6 so if we wanted to follow the flow that's probably helpful to go there chapter 5 verse 20 Paul says the law came in so that transgression would increase but where sin increased grace abounded all the more verse 21 so that as sin reigned in death even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord uh, uh, a monumental uh, portion of scripture now think about this. The law came in. When did the law come in? Well, let me tell you when it didn't come in. It didn't come back. It didn't come in in Genesis chapter uh, uh, twelve. Remember Genesis chapter twelve. God gives specific promises to Abraham. Genesis twelve one. The Lord God said to Abram or Abraham, "Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great." And you'll be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Paul gives a commentary on that interaction in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as what? Righteousness, right? Abraham believed God. So God made these great promises to Abraham. But in these great promises, there was no stress upon sin. God promised Abraham that he'd give him land, seed, and a blessing. Right? Land, seed, and a blessing. The kings would come from him, uh, including the ultimate king of all kings. That he'd have a great name, that he, his, his seed would be a blessing to the world. That his people would dwell permanently in a land. But again, there's no reference to sin. But finally, there comes a time when Israel needed to be instructed about sin. Therefore, at Mount Sinai... God gave the law to Israel. And the law was designed to add a stress that was not found in the Abrahamic promises. And the stress is upon sin. So why did God give the law to the nation of Israel? Answer, to point out their sin. 
The law was given really as a gift of God's grace to man, to show man his sinfulness. To show man his sinfulness, to stir up sin so that he would see his sin, that he would see his guilt, he would see his condemnation, and that he would flee to the Savior who is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would flee to him to have cover for their sin. The law, listen, was never given as a means of salvation. Again, I'm going to say it again. The law was never given as a means of salvation. Chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that transgression would increase. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God gave man the law to see that they were sinners in desperate need of his grace in order to have a relationship with him. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to be justified before a holy God. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from the power of sin in our daily lives because Jesus Christ is the only person who ever lived the Christian life. Right? We, we can't live it. We need Jesus Christ. The whole point of the book of Romans is to point us to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you'll remember in the flow, the context of our study here in, in Romans, Paul has been answering objectors, whether real or imagined, who do not understand the purpose of the law, why God gave the law. And the objectors have come to him and said something along the lines, look, uh, 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 if you teach that men are saved by grace alone, then sin will run rampant. I'll give you a little secret. That's the way God has always proclaimed salvation. It's by grace alone. That's not what people in the time Paul was writing understood. That's why he's having this discussion. So again, the, the, the uh, objectors have repeatedly said that if you teach men are saved by grace alone, sin's going to run rampant. And Paul has been showing us over and over again the contrary is actually true. Those who are free from the condemnation of the law, those who have repented and placed their faith in Christ, are now united with Christ, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they have died to sin. They have newness of life. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may increase, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If we are united with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united with his death. If we are united with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united in his resurrection, right? What happened to him happened to us. Chapter 6, uh, verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you. You're not under law, but under grace. So chapter 7 comes in and deals with that specific point of that statement. The Christian is not under law. So what does that mean? Is the law valueless? Is the law pointless? Again, the theme of chapter 7 is the law and its function, especially with reference to the Christian. So what you have, the audience primarily here in Rome, when Paul is writing is you've got a number of Hebrew believers, Jewish believers, people who come out of that background. And Paul is trying to help them understand their relationship to the law, their new relationship to the law in Christ. Right. So again, the first six uh, verses uh, of the chapter of the Apostle shows that the Christian has a new relationship, right? an entirely new relationship to the law, an entirely new relationship to God, because they have died to the law and they've been joined to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the, the marriage picture, right? Verse 4, he says, not only that, but we have a new purpose. A new purpose in this new relationship. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. So again, just as it was impossible for the law to justify a man before God, it's just as impossible for the law to sanctify a man to, to make a man walk in holiness of life. Only God through Christ can do that. Only through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. Only by having a new relationship, being in union with Christ, married to Christ, that you can be, bear, you can be one who bears fruit for God. We are die, made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that we might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we have, might have newness of life, that we might bear fruit for God. Right? What does the law do? The law actually arouses sin. The law actually stirs up sin. Or it arouses our sinful passions. We looked at that at verse, verse 5 last time here in Romans chapter 7. It says, For while we were in the flesh, right? 
when we are unregenerate, when we were dominated uh, under the dominion of sin, when we are unjustified apart from Christ, for while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions. Uh, passions are, are just those uh, appetites, impulses, emotions. But since the fall of Adam, they have a natural bent towards evil. So Paul calls them the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So apart from Christ, that's what we did. We bore fruit leading to death. Before we were united to Christ, before we were married to the Savior, before we were made new in Christ, all the law did was stimulate those passions to cause us uh, to stimulate sinfulness, uh, sins, lust, greed, envy, egotism, whatever. Every time God said, thou shalt not, that made our sinful heart want to do the thing which God was forbidding. Those sinful passions worked in the members of our body to bear fruit, not for God, but for death. Apart from Christ, we bore fruit for death. In Christ, we now can bear fruit for God. It's a complete transformation. Now, we talked about the implications of verse 5 also last time. We saw verse 5, contrary to the uh, culture, we saw that verse 5 actually teaches us sin's reality, sin's existence. But then it also helps us to understand the tremendous power of sin. That sin is not just a negative quality, if you will. It's not the absence of just certain good qualities, but rather sin is a positive, active force. And that's how we need to think about it. It's a power. It's a positive, active force. Not positive in its good, but positive in its something versus nothing. Sin dominates a man. Sin so strongly positively is a force against the unregenerate man that it drives a man's life to rebellion. It, it drives a man to, uh, it, with the members of his body, produce fruit for death. That's part of verse 5, one of the implications. The power of sin. The second thing verse 5 told us, that teaching morality has a very limited value. Teaching morality has a very limited value. You can't tell a, an unregenerate man to stop doing something. Why? Because he can't stop doing something. Because the power of <clears throat> the power of sin is so great. The power of sin is so great it dominates the unregenerate man. You tell him not to do something, and it actually produces the very opposite reaction. It arouses him to do that very thing. It stimulates him to sin. It stimulates him to rebellion. Again, I told you that's why it's dangerous to teach so-called sex education in our public schools, and it's dangerous to introduce them to the behaviors that they don't know anything about. Deviant sexual practices. It doesn't prepare them to resist sin, but only instills within them a desire to commit that sin that is being presented. Oh, I never thought about that one. Right? That's kind of the idea. It just it stimulates deviant uh, uh, actions. Right? Well, and I said before, <clears throat> what men need is not more information. Men don't need more information. What men need is transformation. Men need to be born again from the inside out. Men need newness of life. The natural man needs to repent. He needs to turn to Christ and to Christ alone. He doesn't need a seminar on his sinful passions and how to keep them in check because, again, he can't do that. Every time the law comes and says don't do something, that law stimulates that man to rebellion. The third thing that verse 5 teaches again is that the law was never meant to save us because all the law can do is arouse us to sin, to arouse our sinful passions, to work out in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. That's why the law was given. Right? The, the law was given, again, verse 20 of uh, chapter 5, that transgression might increase, that sin would abound. The law was given to identify sin, to define sin, to, to, to reveal sin's nature and power in its rebellion against God, to expose sin's power and grip on a man's heart, to unveil sin's deceitfulness in our lives, to convict us, to condemn us, and ultimately to drive us to Christ, to show us our need of a Savior, to show us our <clears throat> need of God's grace. Again, I'm going to say this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And no man can be saved apart from seeing himself as a sinner in desperate need of God's grace, because again, the law cannot save you. The law can only condemn the law can only point out sin's grip and power upon a man's life. Therefore, again, the biblical doctrine of sin is absolutely crucial to an understanding of a biblical doctrine of salvation, 
Whatever we may think cannot be right and clear about the way of salvation unless we are right and clear about sin and too many people think lightly of sin and too lightly about the Savior. Verse 6 says, But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we are bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not oldness of the letter. What does that mean? Well, again, we saw last time that it means because of our union with Christ, we no longer face the condemnation of the law, the penalty of the law. We no longer face the curse of the law. Because in Jesus Christ, we've been set free from the bondage of the law. We, we formerly have, uh, uh, we formerly endured, uh, what we formerly endured uh, in our flesh has been taken over by Christ, covered by Christ. And now, instead of bearing fruit for uh, death, we serve God. We work for God. We bear fruit for God. So again, there's a radical difference between the unbeliever and the believer. <clears throat> the unbeliever is still under condemnation. The unbeliever is still under God's wrath. The believer, however, is bound to Christ. He's married to Christ in union with the Savior. He has been released from the condemnation of the law to serve God. And now, because he's been transformed and changed from the inside out, he has a willingness, a desire to bear fruit for God rather than to bear fruit from death. So now as you come to chapter, verse 7 here in chapter 7, Paul has to defend the integrity of the law and the righteousness of God's law against the critic. But Because, again, he's been teaching and arguing uh, and, and that that the law has increased sin, and, and so his teaching implied that the law was sin. And to answer that critic, he says, verse seven: Shall we say then the law is sin? May it never be. Right? I mean, the very idea that you come to that kind of conclusion is unthinkable. Now, Paul has yes, he has just showed us that law actually stirs up or arouses our sinful passions. And again, the Jews wrongly believe that God gave the law to make them holy. That if they do these things, right, uh, uh, we, can, we can be right before God. Well, they can't do those things. They never did those things. If you do these things, you'll live. And everybody says we're going to do it. And everybody didn't do it. Nobody ever does it. The law shows us how far short we fall of the standard and that we need grace. The law came in to increase sin, that, that sin w- would uh, abound. Because not, not that the law is sinful, but the law exposes our heart. The law uh, makes sin come to, to, to life, if you will. So again, Paul proclaimed that the law arouses us to sin, which results in death. So Paul has to answer his critics and answer the charges of the law sin. So Paul, in, in essence, has to validate the law to show the law was not responsible for mankind's failure. Mankind is responsible for mankind's failure. Again, Paul is going to show the purpose of the law, the role, and the function of the law. What shall we say then is the law sin, to which again Paul says, may never be is the strongest form of negation in the Greek. God forbid. No, 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 a thousand times over. Again, the very suggestion is unthinkable. How could anybody ever suggest that something that God would bring forth, that something that God commands could ever be sinful? Chapter 7, verse 12. The law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So again, what is the purpose of the law in the life of the believer? Right? What's the purpose of the law? If it can't sanctify us, if it can't save us, what's its role? The answer is the law is not sin, but what the law does, it reveals our sin. The law reveals our sin. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that Paul would never have been aware of the real nature of sin until the law made it clear to him. It was the law that made him understand the essential nature and the character of sin. It was the law that revealed man's fundamental lack of understanding of sin. That's the problem with the unregenerate man. He doesn't understand sin. He doesn't understand sin and its power and dominion over him. That's why the unregenerate man doesn't see his need of a savior. The unregenerate man thinks he's all right. The unredeemed uh, live uh, their lives according to their own standard of right and wrong. Uh, They compare themselves to other men in the room, and they reason in their minds that they're not as bad off as someone else in the room, therefore they must be fine. And if they just try harder and, and believe in their heart that if they do enough right things then if there is a God, they reason that they should be okay with him when they die because, after all, they've heard this, that God is a God of love and no one is perfect, right? So we're going we're gonna to trust in our own effort and we're going to 
count on the attribute that God is a loving God, and we're just going to do the best we can. And what the problem with the unregenerate man is doing with that kind of mindset is he's placing himself right back under the law. They're trying to place themselves under the law. They're trying to live their lives by a certain standard of the law that they themselves fail to keep. Well, you know what? I'm pretty good. I got 99 out of 100. Okay, good. All right. What does James say? James 2 and 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. It only takes one transgression of God's law to make you a lawbreaker, one transgression in your entire life. Everybody who runs back under the law in an attempt to justify themselves before God are doing nothing more than heaping condemnation upon themselves. They're trying to make themselves right before a holy God by what they do or don't do. Again, they're hoping that God's love will override his justice. And again, they fail to utterly understand the nature and the character of sin. They fail to see themselves as sinners before a God, guilty before a holy God by their very presence in his universe. Forget the deeds. By his, their very presence, they're guilty before a holy God. They don't understand that. They don't understand the power of sin. They don't understand the, uh, the, the grip that sin has on the heart of mankind. They do not understand that apart from Christ, everything they do that is quote-unquote good in the sight of men, the Bible says, the prophet Isaiah says, is utterly despicable in the sight of God. That all their righteous deeds are like nothing more than, than, than filthy rags. They don't understand the, the righteousness of God. They don't understand the law of God. They don't understand the function of the law of God. It is to bring to man's mind, to his attention, to his conscience, the true nature of sin and what sin really means in the sight of God and how utterly hopeless and helpless they are. So what Paul does in chapter 7 is he uses a personal example. He says, I would not have come to know sin. I would not have come to know what sin was except through the law. And then he goes on to say, for what, uh, for I would not have known about coveting or covetousness if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, the word coveting is the Greek word epithemia, and it means to desire, to crave, to long, to desire for what is forbidden, lust sometimes. And that's the way the King James translated it. For I would not have come to know lust except the law had said, excuse me, thou shalt not covet. The King James goes on in verse 8 to describe coveting or lusting as concupiscence. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. I like that word. Why do you like that word? I don't know. I like that word. We don't use it very often because we don't use the word sin. We certainly don't use the word concupiscence. The NAS says, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. The NIV says every kind of covetous desire. The New King James says all manner of evil desires. That's what the law did. It aroused in me these actions, these, these feelings. So the law here in the context has to be the Ten Commandments given in the book of Exodus because of what Paul says and the example he uses and the portion of Scripture he quotes. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law for what I would not have come to know about coveting if the law, the Ten Commandments, right? The law had not said you shall not covet. Now the Ten Commandments are found in the book of Exodus. So you're going to put a little mark there in your Bible or you can just sit and listen, whatever you'd like to do. And we'll go back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, and we'll start in verse 1. And these run down through about verse 17, I believe. Yeah. And uh, I want you to listen. And I want you to listen to what the commandments say. And I want you to listen to see if you notice what is the difference or what is the change uh, uh, from what is common to the first nine and what is different about the tenth commandment. Now, I'm just going to get to the issue. I'm going to leave out some of the commentary on the side here, but I'm going to get to the issue because I want you to hear the commandments. Verse 1, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, which is the first commandment, you shall know the gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol. That's the second commandment. Verse 5, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord uh, your God. I am a jealous God. Verse uh, uh, 7, the third commandment. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Drop down to verse 12. The fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Verse 13, you shall not murder, which is the sixth. The seventh, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal, which is the eighth. Verse 16, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The tenth commandment, verse 17, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, did you notice the difference? I know the first four have to do with uh, our relationship to God and the six, the last six have to do with our relationship to man, but that's not what I'm referencing. That's not what I'm trying to have you hear. There is a distinction between what a man does or does not do in his actions and the distinction between his inner being, his heart. Listen again. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall worship not worship or serve them. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. They're all outward actions. Then the tenth one, verse 17, you shall not covet. You shall not desire or crave or long for something that is forbidden. You shall not lust. You shall not desire something that belongs to somebody else and doesn't belong to you. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So coveting is an issue of the heart. It is an internal issue, not just external. Romans 7 and 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin, except through the law I would not come, come to know about coveting. If the law had said, you shall not covet. Paul's saying, look, before I was saved, when I was a Pharisee, I thought just like all the other Pharisees thought about sin in terms of actions, things I did, things I did not do, external actions. But the law came and the law exposed sin, not as something that was just external, but the law exposed sin as something that is internal right what, what did the pharisees teach what did they believe they, they taught and believed as long as you did the right thing on the outside if you performed if you did not perform the evil act you're okay you were fine you're not guilty of sin you have kept the law externally but the law comes along and says no that's not true sin is not just external sin is internal it has every bit to do not just with evil actions but it has every bit to do with evil desires Desiring those things that are forbidden. That's lusting. Desiring those things that don't belong to you. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ went to great lengths to help us understand that truth in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. The Pharisees had been teaching the people one thing, deceiving themselves and deceiving the people into believing that as long as you did the externals of the law, you were fine. But the Lord Jesus Christ comes along and says, no, that's not true. Matthew five twenty one. You have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be be liable to the court. Verse twenty two. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Anger is a hard issue. Anger is a heart issue. It's sin in the heart. And sin in the heart, listen, always precedes actions in the body. Verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, verse 28 of Matthew chapter 5, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Same thing is true here with adultery. Adultery begins by a look, lusting after a woman. It's an issue of the heart before the act. It's the heart that precedes the action. So sin is not just external. Sin has to do with the heart. The inner passions that drive a man. The natural man, the unregenerate man doesn't understand that. Pharisees didn't understand that. The Pharisees didn't understand the meaning and the purpose of the law. Again, they thought they could keep all these laws, and if they did all these things, not just the 10, but the other 600 or so that they added to it, if we do all these things, then we're right before God. And God says, I never gave you the law for that purpose, and you're not right at all because your hearts aren't right. 
That's why in the new covenant, he promises to give us a new heart, right? Paul didn't understand this before his conversion. Stop and think about Paul in his pre-conversion state, in his pre-conversion experience. He's Saul of Tarsus. What is he doing? He's murdering Christians, right? He's persecuting Christians. He's a great persecutor of the Christian church. He's on his way on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians, and he's literally arrested, apprehended by the person of Jesus Christ himself. And in those days that followed that encounter on the Damascus road, he sits in blindness. And I think while he sits in blindness, he has to deal with his own life. Circumcised on the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in law, found blameless. You know, that's pretty good. I put that on my resume. Now, but then he met Jesus Christ. Then he met Jesus Christ, and through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, he had to realize that his religious life profited him absolutely nothing. Because he said, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, that the whole world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, if you're wondering. He had to come through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to know that he was guilty in need of a Savior, in need of Christ. He had to come to a point where he understood what the law was really all about. Now, for a long time when he was a Pharisee, he thought he knew what it was about, right? Uh, he could read the law as anybody as well as anybody else. He could interpret the law through rabbinical lenses or rabbinical traditions. And he tried to keep his life, he tried to keep the law by doing religious uh, Activities And as a religious individual, like all religious individuals, once he came to a knowledge of the truth, he described them in Romans chapter 10. He says, They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own. Therefore, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Right? We're going to make our own standard. We're going to carry out our own religious activities. And we're going to pronounce ourselves good because of what we have done. That's all religious systems. But then he came to an understanding when he met the righteous one. He came to a knowledge of the truth. He came and he said in Romans chapter 10 verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now again, he didn't understand the purpose of the law until he met the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he didn't understand that the law reveals our sin. And then he came to an understanding that not only does it reveal our sin, but the law is an internal issue. The law is concerned with mankind's heart with the attitudes towards God, the attitudes towards uh, a man, fellow men, every bit as much as actions. I think he came to see Isaiah or uh, 1 Samuel 16 in a different fashion. God sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord's concerned about the heart. Now go back to Romans chapter 7. What shall we say then is the lost sin? Again, may it never be. How in the world can you come to that kind of conclusion? On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have to come to know about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Again, Paul says, until I met Christ, until I met the righteous one, I didn't realize my heart was the issue. And to desire something that I had no right to was just as much of a sin as if I had physically done something wrong. I failed to see that until that I failed to see that until the law showed me the internal nature of sin. That a desire to commit an act leaves me just as guilty as actually carrying out the very act. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Again, the, the law opened my eyes to the nature and the character of sin. So he's not critic he's not uh, putting the law down. He's not saying the law is sin. Now, he's saying, let me help you understand the true purpose of the law. You don't. Is the law sin? No, absolutely not. The law reveals sin. One writer says this, apart from the law, we would have no way to accurately judge our sinfulness. Only God's law reveals his divine standard of righteousness and thereby enables us to see how far short we are of his righteousness and how helpless we are to attain to it by our own efforts. We can never keep the law. We can never keep the law perfectly. We can never attain to the righteous standard that we, God demands 
to get into heaven by our own effort into the righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't do anything to earn it. To put yourself back under the law is craziness. It's to heap cursing and condemnation upon you. And the one who set you free from that is the standard of righteousness. Without the law, we have no standard. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm better than that. That doesn't matter. Are you holy as the holy God? And the answer is absolutely not. What shall we say then? Is the law sin may never be. On the contrary, would not have come to no sin except through the law. So again, until he met Christ, he wasn't aware of the real nature of sin. And then the law makes it clear to him. The law brings him to a right understanding of the essential character and nature and the meaning of sin. He said, I would have not come to know sin except through the law, or and I have not come I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now you'll notice the, the word know is used there twice. It's two different words. The first one is gnosko, to know, to recognize, perceive. And, and, and the second one is oida. It, it is mean to see with a perception. It's kinda like it's kind of like, I get it. Not just, I, well, I see that. No, I see it and I get it. That's kind of the idea. So, so the second one here, the second no is really stronger than the first one. It means to know with absolute, absolutivity. How's that for a word I just made up? Right? It, it, it means to know the, the, the result of, of by, by experience, by perception, the reality. Uh, to, to really genuinely get it, to understand. I, I wouldn't have come to know about coveting unless the, the law said you shall not covet. So again, Paul says, in essence, I wouldn't have comprehended the meaning of sin but by the law. And, and then he adds, I, I would never have understood and come to feel the depth of my, to the depth of my being, the full understanding of my experience and the meaning of lust and the part that lust plays in a, man li- a man's life if the law said you shall not covet. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, in other words, the law had not been brought only brought to Paul to see that lust was sin. It brought him to see the terrible power of lust in his own life. So the law had rendered a great service to him. In essence, he says, I really had no true understanding of sin until the law enlightened me. I had been oblivious of the power and the place of lust in my life until the commandment about coveting arrested me and I suddenly began to realize the truth about myself. Right? Is the law sin? I mean, the, the whole idea is ridiculous. You just don't understand the purpose of the law is the issue, and I'm trying to help you is what Paul's saying. And again, it was the sovereign grace of God that arrested him on the road to Damascus that transformed him. And it was that same sovereign power of God that, that brought an awareness to his deep sin that his religious activities were like filthy rags before holy God. Therefore, he's in a whole lot of trouble. And he needed a Savior. And he met the Savior. The righteous one, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that same God, sovereign, working power in his life to see the truth about himself, to help him understand the truth about the law. And to bring him to a place where he could say, I would not have understood the real battle with sin, and the real battle with sin is in my heart. It's in my heart. It's in my mind. It's an internal issue. I wouldn't have come to an understanding of that truth if the law had said, you shall not covet that's the role of the law. That's the role of the law. Is it, is it sin? Is the law sin? Again, God forbid. The law is not sin. The law reveals sin. The law defines sin. The law reveals sin's nature and exposes sin's real character. The law convicts. The law condemns. And the law drives us to Christ. Again, to see the fact that we're in a whole lot of trouble. We're in a whole lot of trouble. Only Christ can save us. That's why the old uh, evangelistic preachers... I used to do what they would call law work. Law work. They would expound the demands and uh, of the law and then present the law and all the condemnation of sin, both internal and external. You're in a whole lot of trouble. This is what the law demands and you can't live up to it. And then they would present the answer. Right? Before they present the, the work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer, people have to see how bad they are. Right? And unless the law exposes man's mind and his conscience to the true nature of sin, to the internal grip that sin has on a man's nature and his soul, unless a man truly sees the condition that he is in before a holy God, that he's lost, lost and utterly condemned and unable under God's wrath 
to do anything to save himself, but he's a helpless sinner. He won't understand why Christ died, and he won't understand what Christ's death means. Therefore, he won't see his need of Christ as his Savior. And listen, Jesus Christ only came into the world to save sinners. And the sad reality of the fact is most men never see their need of a Savior because they don't see their sin. They don't see their sin. God sees a man's heart. The law reveals sin. And without a conviction of sin, the ground has not been prepared for the gospel to be presented. Charles Hodge, the great theologian, uh, wrote this. He said, Conviction of sin is an adequate knowledge of its nature and a sense of its power over us is an, an indispensable part of evangelistic religion or evangelical religion. Before the gospel can be embraced as a means of deliverance from sin, we must feel we are involved in corruption and misery. And that's a tremendous statement. You can't go to the gospel for the answer until you understand the depth of your problem in sin. As long as you think you're okay, and as long as you think you and God can work it out, and as long as you think you can do something to justify yourself before a holy God, that you're good enough, you'll never see Christ as your only hope. And that's where Paul was as a Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. Man, I'm pretty good. i got a pretty good resume here. Until he met the righteous one. He's, he's living in this ethereal, experimental religious system of the things that he has done and counting his own righteousness until he met the righteous one and he's flattened on his face and sees his guilt. As the law of sin, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know about sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You shall not covet, right? The law reveals sin. Then he says this, verse 8. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. What does that mean? Well, here's the answer to why the law had the effect of aggravating or stirring up, arousing sin in the lust of our members. Now remember verse 5 says, While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body, bearing fruit for death. Here he says, verse 8, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment. So what does that mean? Does this break down the word sin? Now, sin doesn't mean, again, just acts of sin. But Paul's talking about sin in the context of a principle of power. A principle of power that works within the fallen human nature. He said sin, this power, took opportunity. The word opportunity, it says in the uh, authorized, it says that taking occasion. F-orme is the word. It means a place from which a movement or attack is made or a base of operation. So Paul's saying, look, sin came in and sin used the commandment as a beachhead, as a place to launch an attack to launch its evil work. For example, and we've used this before, right? So the statement doesn't come as a big surprise. In the example you get, we happen to be rebels, right? And almost reflexively, we resist commandments or prohibitions. We see a sign that says, stay off the grass. We see a sign that says, don't pick the flowers. And we have the uh, uh, impulse to do the very opposite of the thing that the law is forbidding us, the sign is forbidding us to do. Theologian John Murray, in his book, Principles of Conduct, observes that the more light of God's law that shines into our depraved hearts, the more enmity our minds are aroused to opposition, proving that the mind of the flesh is not subject to the law of God. The more God's truth reveals into our unregenerate hearts, the more we say, I'm not doing that. Another writer says this, when a person is confronted by God, uh, by God's law, the forbidden thing becomes all the more attractive, not so much for its own sake, but for furnishing a channel for the assertion of self-will. The law comes in and says, don't this, don't do this. And we say, who in the world are you to tell me what to do? I am my own sovereign. I am in charge of my own life captain of my own soul, right? Paul says, sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced, the King James says wrought, produced, performed, accomplished, achieved, worked out in me coveting of every kind. That's what the law did. It produced coveting of every kind. Every kind of covetous desire. All manner of evil desire. All manner of concupiscence. James Boyce, in his commentary, has an interesting uh, illustration from his own life as a kid when he was in grammar school. 
and it's about firecrackers. Firecrackers in school. They were having problems when he was grammar school with firecrackers in school. And the principal would come over the intercom or whatever, walked into every class. I can't remember the story, but he said, uh, no firecrackers in school. Anybody that brings firecrackers in school is going to be suspended. Now, James Boyce and his friends had been really thinking about firecrackers until the principal said, don't do that. So at lunch, what did they do? You know what they did. They went home and got firecrackers. And they brought them back. And what did they do? They exploded one in a hallway that made a big boom. Principal finds them, calls their parents, and says, I just told them, don't do that. Principal's surprised. We're not surprised. That's what the law does, right? The law stirs up rebellion. Who are you to tell me what to do? I had sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me all, all kinds or every kind of coveting, right? every kind of covetous desire. Paul says, look, sin seized the opportunity and used the commandment to produce in me all kinds of evil desires and lusts, all manner of, you know, of coveting. The law said, you shall not covet, and uh, all manner of evil desire filled my mind and my heart and my imagination. The law aroused me sinful in me sinful passions, or my sinful passions, and they began to work in the members of my body to produce fruit for death. That's what sin did, Paul said. It took that commandment of God, that which is holy, just, and good, and it stimulated my passions, my sinful passions, and I became a mass of corruption, a cesspool of iniquity. All those evil thoughts dominated my heart and my imagination. He says, look, this is who I was before I was uh, when I was unregenerate, before I came to Christ. This is the life I lived when I was a so-called religious, quote-unquote, individual. This is the life I lived in the flesh apart from Christ. And that's the true nature of every person apart from Christ. That's the true nature of the inner state uh, 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 of the heart of every unregenerate believer or un- unregenerate, every unregenerate man, the heart of the natural man, that's his state. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, describes the heart of mankind before the flood. It says, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8.21 describes the heart of man after the flood. It says the intent of heart, man's heart was evil from his youth. It hasn't changed, right? The heart of the natural man is corrupt, evil. The law comes in and says, thou shalt not. And sin within us stimulates rebellion within us because of our hatred for God. We do not want God to rule over us. Our sinful passions are aroused by the law, and we lust, we desire to do the very thing that the command of the law says don't do. Right? Don't bring firecrackers to school. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll go get some firecrackers. Who are you to tell me what to do? And even if we don't carry out the physical act... Just the sheer desire for the sin, the thinking of the thing, makes us guilty before a holy God. It's not just externals, it's internals. It's our hearts. So again, as I said before, I'm going to say it again. Sin is not the absence of good. Sin is not a negative per se. You've got to understand sin is a positive power. Because a negative can't produce results. Nothing can't produce something. A void if something can't produce fruit unto death. Sin is a positive power. And sin uses the law of God, and it does so and produces certain results. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. So we've got to think rightly about sin. We've got to think biblically about sin. We've got to understand sin from a biblical perspective. Sin cannot be overcome in the life of the unregenerate person by just teaching them moralisms. Sin can't be overcome in the life of an unregenerate person by education or by learning. Sin can't be overcome uh, or or resisted by encouraging an unregenerate person to do the right thing. Just say no to drugs. Just say no to alcohol. Just say no to premarital sex. It doesn't work like that. It can't work because sin is too powerful. Sin is too powerful for mankind apart from Christ. Again, remember what the scriptures already said about sin, uh, Romans 5 and 21. Sin reigned in death. Chapter 6, verse 14. Sin is dominion over us, or is master over those who don't know Christ the Savior. Chapter 6, verse 17. Every man apart from Christ is a slave of sin. So sin is so powerful that it reigns. Sin is so powerful that it rules. It dominates. It rules over every person who does not know Christ. 
every man who is not united with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, sin is so powerful that sin even uses the commandment of God to stimulate or to arouse sinful passions within us that it might produce all manner of evil. That's the power of sin. That's the biblical view of sin. Except for the person of God himself, sin is the most powerful thing in the entire universe. And no man apart from being united with the person of Jesus Christ can ever stand a chance of standing up against sin. No part, no man apart from a union with Christ can ever escape sin's dominion, sin's power, sin's grip on a person's life. Because what sin does is it arouses rebellion against God. It stimulates our hatred of God. And again, mankind is held captive to sin, dominated by sin, controlled by sin, and consumed by lusts, passions, desires, evil desires, willing to do anything and everything and only those things that sin bids us to do. That's the unregenerate man. The unregenerate man serves sin, he produces fruit from death, and he can only produce fruit for death. He can only produce all manner of evil desire. That's the essence of sin, the nature of sin, the character of sin, the power, the domination, uh, the enslaving of sin in the natural man. So the commandment comes, again, that which is good, pure, and holy, and sin within us is aroused to rebellion. Rebellion of actions, rebellion of mind, rebellion of thoughts, rebellion to desire all manner of evil. That's who we were apart from Christ. That's who we were apart from Christ. That's who the natural man still is apart from being united to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What shall we say then, as the law sin may never be, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have come to know about coveting if the law said you shall not covet. So again, the, the law is not the problem. Man's the problem. The law is not the problem. Man is the problem. The law is not sinful. It's the law that reveals sin within mankind. That sin that is stimulated and aroused by the commandment of God. And that sin uh, is inflamed by the law of God, the sinful passions, to do all kinds of manner of evil. But that's the story of the unregenerate man. That's the story of the, the, the person who's not a believer in Christ. For the believer, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not oldness of letter. What shall we say then as the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have to come to know about coveting if the law, said, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Right? For the believer, he understands the law. He understands the power of sin. He sees his need of a Savior. And again, his understanding of sin drives him to Christ that he might find help, that he might find forgiveness of sin. The Christian gets it. At least they should. The Christian should understand their utter helplessness, utter hopelessness, and cry out to God that God would be merciful to him, the sinner. And in response to God's electing love, that sinner who God in his kindness regenerates flees from self-effort, self-works, any kind of righteousness which might be found in the law, which there's none, and he flees to Christ. He sees Christ. Is the law sinful? Absolutely not. It's the law that actually drives us to the person of Christ. We wouldn't have understood our sin apart from the law. We've not, we wouldn't have come to know God in his mercy and his grace uh, if it wasn't for the law. Right? For the law to do its work, to expose our sinfulness, our wickedness, to drive us to the Savior. Paul concludes verse 8 by saying this. He says, But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind, he says, for apart from the law, sin is dead. So the argument here is not that sin had no existence apart from the law, because we know that not to be true. Before the law came in, people were still dying, right? Uh, death came through Adam, and death spread to all men. But sin was dead in the sense that it was somewhat dormant. That's what he's saying. For apart from the law, sin is dead. It was somewhat dormant. It wasn't fully active as it would become when the law did enter the world. Again, the law came in so that transgression would increase. Where sin increased, what? Grace abounded all the more. Right? So the law, again, does its work. Right? We who know the Savior, 
we who understand our sin, we should thank God for these two verses, right? Verses 7 and 8. Because they tell us something about the depths from which we've been saved. The depths from which we've been delivered, redeemed uh, from the penalty of the law and the dominion of sin. He, he forgave us our sins because of Christ. He gave us new life because of Christ. A, a new life that can only be lived in the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God in Christ. And, and these two verses tell us something about the world in which we live. That apart from Christ, people in this world have no hope. And, and when I say that, you go, yeah, I hear that all the time. No, but look, look. People have no hope. That's why lawlessness is increasing. Lawlessness is on the rise. There's the increasing crime. Lawlessness on the rise. Delinquency is a problem. Robbery, violence, murder, terrorism. It's all because of sin. It's all because of the power of sin, the dominion of sin over mankind. And in the unregenerate man, it makes him a slave. And sin produces every kind of evil through mankind. Now again, the natural man doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand the doctrine of sin. But as Christians, we do. We understand the truth. And again, the light of the truth drives us to the person of Christ and to Christ alone for, for which we're thankful. And again, if we have a desire to be uh, evangelistically helpful, if I can put it that way, we have to direct men's mind back to the law. We have to pray that the law of God, through the convicting work of the person of the Holy Spirit, will expose to them who they really are and that they would see their utter helplessness and hopelessness apart from Christ. Have you ever told the lie? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever looked with lust? It only takes one violation of the law to make you a lawbreaker and to make you eternally condemned before a holy God. God does not grade on a curve. There's no category of, I hope I do more things better. And every world, you know, more good things than I do bad things. And every religious system, apart from biblical Christianity, has that kind of structure. Everybody's trying to work for something that God wants to give to us freely. And again, righteousness only comes through the, the righteous one. Right? And, 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 and Paul understood that when he met that person. And we need to understand that. We need to flee to Christ. Christ is our only hope. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for that truth. So thankful for this kind of look at sin and the law and what the law actually does with sin in us. And so thankful for the fact that it drives us not to more self-effort or more self-trying, but it drives us to you, our God, and to Christ, our Savior. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the great display of grace that you show men uh, through uh, our Savior. Thank you for this day of uh, worship and our fellowship. And again, we pray your blessing upon a VBS as it's about to start uh, tomorrow. May you draw men and women, children, uh, to yourself through the proclamation of the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.